Welcome to Count Me In with Ellen Deanna. Today we feature an exciting conversation with Dr. Mary Gray, Distinguished Professor of Mathematics and Statistics at American University in Washington, D.C. Dr. Gray earned her PhD in Mathematics from the University of Kansas and her JD from the Washington College of Law at American University. As a statistician and lawyer, Dr. Gray's areas of research focus on applications of statistics to human rights, economic equity, and education. She is the founder of the Association for Women in Mathematics, a fellow of the American Statistical Association and the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and a recipient of the Presidential Award for Excellence in Science, Engineering, and Mathematics Mentoring. She has authored two books and over 80 articles. In this conversation, you will learn about the power of an effective undergraduate advisor, about recognizing and caring for critical issues long before they gain national attention, about working with others to affect change, and about how a gift of gratitude from a student led to an extensive collection of owls. So please join us as we talk with Dr. Mary Gray. Welcome to our podcast, Mary. Thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. What would we what would you be doing if we weren't pulling you away to interview you? Um, deciding how I'm going to reorganize the sampling course that I'm teaching in the fall. I reorganize that course every year because I'm never happy with the way it gets organized. But since it's an election year, there are all kinds of good possibilities for, for the sampling course. Oh, absolutely. Well, Mary, we like to start our interviews off by asking you to tell us your story up through high school. So what was it like being little Mary? Um, well, you know, I was always taller than everybody else, so I was never little Mary. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, um, I now, in fact, my worst problem, I have a collapsed spine, and the worst problem is I'm now three inches shorter than I used to be. So um, I used to be tall for a woman in, in my age, and now I'm short. And that hurts a lot. That's even worse than hobbling around on canes. <laughs> but anyway, but, so it was never little Mary, and I got along just fine. Um, I, until I got to graduate school, I never heard of such a thing as, as discriminating against women because we weren't supposed to do math. There weren't, it wasn't anybody else doing math, but I mean, there weren't any other women doing math, but so what? Mm-hmm. Where did you grow up? In Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And in spite of what one would get if one reads the news now, uh, the Midwest, at least when I was growing up, was reasonably enlightened. Tell us about your college and graduate school experience. Well, college, as I said, no, no, it was a small college um, in my hometown. My father died when I was in high school, when I was in my last year of high school. So I... It wasn't wasn't really possible to to go away to to uh, to college, but that was okay because I had totally free tuition, and I had one of the real great benefits of undergraduate education that I think doesn't exist now. They let me take as many courses as I wanted. Mm-hmm. So instead of the usual what 128 or whatever hours of credit, I ended up with like 160 hours of credit. <laughs> so I could you know dabble in anything that came along, and it was such a such a good experience, and they don't get that now. The students, you know, they're they're focused on their majors or they're focused on something else, but they never really have the liberty to expand. First of all, it costs them more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even you know, we can't even sign up people for more courses if they're willing to pay for them uh, beyond a certain extent. So it's a problem. Mm-hmm. What subjects interested you in college? Um, everything. Uh, that was the problem. I took all the math that was available. Um, I didn't take economics until I was a senior. I would have probably taken a lot more economics because I really liked it. I had a great course in Russian history along the way, uh, which was the only course that my small school had in Russian history, but it got me more interested in history. And I took a, a, a British history course. And now I find in England I'm much better on the sequence of British of UK kings than, than the Brits are themselves. Because <laughs> I remember, you know, which Henry went where and so on and so forth. Um, so I like history. I like economics. I, I like chemistry. Uh, I, I was majoring in physics as well as math. And I like chemistry. 
But in about the second chemistry course, I was always generating some bad smells or some dangerous substances or what have you. And the advisor said, why don't you just minor in chemistry? Forget about majoring in chemistry in spite of the fact that I'm getting pretty good grades. I was going up the, uh, the lab atmosphere. So I, chemistry was not one of my favorite topics, although I did take a couple of courses in it. But literature, I like everything. Oh, and, and what I did do that was fun. My, um, my, my mother's um, background was, was German. But my mother was a small child at the time of the First World War. And in the First World War, in this small town, not my hometown, but an even smaller town where she grew up, uh, they took out all the German books and burned them in the town square during the First World War. So when anybody talks about President, I tell them a story that most of them have not heard. And as a result, although my grandmother immigrated from Germany and, and spoke German, uh, dialect but spoke German, and they never spoke German at, at home. Mm-hmm. Words I grew up hearing, you know, usually when I was misbehaving or something, but, but German wasn't used. However, when I got to college, I had a very good, you know, the, the registrar of the small college was a very good advisor, and she told me I needed to take foreign language. So one summer I devoted to, uh, to totally doing German. I took all the courses we had available in German over the summer. Uh, my grandmother thought my German was not appropriate, of course, because it wasn't the kind of German that she learned in a small town in East Prussia. But, but the advantage was that when it came time to be a senior, one of the things I applied for was a Fulbright grant mm-hmm. uh, for a graduate study. And um, there are lots of applications for Fulbright studies uh, in Germany, but almost none of them want to do math or science, all of them want to do art or history or music or um, something else. So between being in a small college in the Midwest, which probably helped, and wanting to do mathematics, um, I managed to get a Fulbright. And I I also got an NSF to study math because that's when they were floating around a lot of money to get people into math. They allowed me to postpone that, so I took a year off and and went to Germany uh, to study math. Um, But, you know, I learned so many other things. It was a wonderful experience. Your story really highlights the effectiveness of a a good advisor. Absolutely. And also... My parents were um, you know, willing to, to talk over things with me. And, and if I got advice from somebody else, we would discuss it. So it wasn't a lack of parental interest. I don't want anybody to think that. Mm-hmm. In fact, my father used to um, read me uh, Nebraska history stories. I, mean, I think that's a very large, large category. But when I was a really small child, uh, I can remember sitting on his lap while he was reading Nebraska history stories. So it was not, as I said, a lack of involvement, but I did have one very good advisor. Um, was there anyone in your childhood who you would say really helped you or encouraged you to go on to college, to study mathematics, um, you know, had influence in your life? Well, it was always clear I was going to go to college because I always had extremely good grades. And I was probably, when I graduated from high school, what I was thinking of as a career was becoming a teacher maybe a high school teacher, but a, a teacher. Mm-hmm. And when I got to college, um, people said, no, no, you really ought to think about being a college teacher. And I then set my eyes either on becoming a college teacher in mathematics or a lawyer. And um, as, as, as is the case now, law schools are expensive. And I would have had to go away to law school and pay for it from my family who really didn't have the money. Or the NSF and the Fulbright people and everybody else in the world would finance me. So uh, I had to wait to become a lawyer until, what, 15 years after I had a PhD in in mathematics. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did have a very good, uh, uh, the last three years of my undergraduate experience, I had a very good mathematics professor. Um, And he also helped me in the following way. The last semester that I was an undergraduate, he fell and broke his leg. So he turned over teaching all the elementary courses uh, to me. Uh, <laughs> I taught calculus one, two, and three, I, and linear algebra uh, while I was still an undergraduate. <laughs> That's one. That's good experience. Yeah. I wanted to, Mary. I wanted to come back. I I've learned. I've heard you talk about your undergraduate experience and about your NSF and your Fulbright. 
But tell us about your graduate school experience, your first one in math. Later, we'll come back to law school, but your first one in math. Well, as I say, the first time I really saw discrimination against women in math, I think, was when I entered graduate school. When I was on the Fulbright in Germany, the, uh, I was at the University in, uh, Goethe University in Frankfurt. And probably their most distinguished faculty member was a woman who was well-known in mathematics. And they had another uh, professor. And, then, you know, German universities don't have that, have that many professors, but two of them were women. Um, there was a visiting professor from the United States, but... Um, who later became a great enemy of bringing women into math. But that was a story that I didn't know about at the time. My first day in graduate school, my first course in graduate school was a course in topology. And as I was walking out the door, the instructor said to me, I don't know what you're doing here. You're taking up a place that could be occupied by a man. I said it was a total shock to me because I've never heard anything like this. So I figured that, you know, don't get mad, just get even. So I did better than anybody else in the course. And the interesting part about that was that many years later, when I had, you know, been reasonably successful, I would happen to run into him occasionally at meetings, and he would ask as if he'd been a great positive influence. And um, I decided to let him go with that, because the next woman who came along, he might know how to behave a little bit better. So he got away with that. But anyway, I got to graduate school with him. Aside from that comment, I did fine. <laughs> there were no other women in the PhD program, women in the master's degree program, but none in the PhD program. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as I say, I, I think it was, it was a good experience. And so after your Fulbright and your NSF grant, and where did, did you land at American right away? No, um, I... Um, Month after I finished my PhD, I got married, and um, I did not. Ha- I had not been job hunting because it was not clear to me that I was actually going to get married. I was, you know, back and forth, whatever have you. And um, my my husband had a job uh, at Berkeley, so mm-hmm. uh, we went to Berkeley. And um, the first semester, I took some courses in the math department at University of California at Berkeley. It was obviously it was a much more expansive program than I had had uh, at the University of Kansas. And um, then the second semester, there was a a job at the uh, Cal State University, uh, the state university system, supposed to the university system, in Hayward, which is now known as Cal State East Bay. Mm -hmm. So I taught uh, Cal State East Bay or Cal State Hayward. uh, Then for the next um, three years, and um, my husband was on a postdoc, so then we were looking for a place to go, and we looked at places that um, conceivably had two universities in the same town, because we had concluded even after a short-term marriage that we probably shouldn't end up in the same department if we expected the marriage to last, <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, to be in the same town if possible. And that was, you know, that was when they didn't not hire women uh, because it was like we were not a threat. We only became a threat to the profession later on. So that was not too much of a difficulty, but still, we looked at um, New Orleans because that was a possibility. We looked at um, uh, the only place we actually considered both going to was Indiana because there's nothing else around living in Indiana. Um, But that was the problem with it. And um, we looked at Houston. Um, but Washington was um, a good place to look like to come because there are lots of universities here. And in the city, there are four or five. And my husband uh, went to the University of Maryland, the main campus of which is in College Park, which is, which is a suburb. So that's where we ended up. And that was in 1968. Now, the Berkeley experience was interesting. Cal State experience was interesting from the point of view of discrimination also from the point of view of getting interested in social activism. That's when the free speech movement started at, at Berkeley and um, sort of spread around the country. So we were involved in that in, in many different ways. Um, when I came to Washington um, in the spring of 68, there had been very serious um, destruction and riots and so on in Washington. So Washington was a fairly interesting place. And I got involved in lots of different um, 
human rights issues and discrimination issues. And that stuck for the next 50 years. <laughs> Unfortunately, all of the things that we managed to win back in the 70s, now we have to fight all over again. Very depressing. <laughs> you probably, you, you may not want to hear this, but I live in a part in the Washington suburb where we have two Supreme Court justices. And um, there's a, routinely a demonstration at the home of one of them. And occasionally on Wednesday nights, there's a, there's a march from his house to the other house, which is the other justice who lives in the neighborhood, which is not that far away, going down the street close to me. So last night I decided to join that. I don't walk very well, and I only joined it for a little while, but I figured I can march too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I thought it would do any good, I would feel better about it, but still I felt better about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There have been a couple of points in your life when you felt that you um, wanted to go back and get another degree. Could you tell us about those? Well, actually, my math major was in in algebra, very, very abstract kind of algebra, no uh, application that anybody would ever think of. And um, it was clear to me that while I could prove theorems and get a few papers published, I was not going to do anything great in mathematics that was going to interest me all that much long term or or do that much to help anybody else. So when I got to in to partly at Cal State Hayward, but more importantly when I got to Washington, people started asking questions that involved uh, statistics. You know, the first thing that I remember in Washington was they were trying to figure out why the no women were being appointed as White House fellows. That used to be White House fellows used to be a regular program. And someone that came in and wanted me to figure out what was the probability of having uh, all men in that position. Mm-hmm. And then a few other things came along and it became clear that in all of the issues that were involving equity for women in the 70s and 80s, there were numbers involved. And most of the women who were working in the movement were frankly terrible because they'd all been told that either they weren't any good at mathematics or they actually weren't any good at mathematics or they weren't interested in it. And as a result, when it came to the issues of data, there wasn't anybody else there. So I switched over and became a statistician essentially by getting involved in issues. And then I went back and did a lot of studying on my own, set in on a few classes at local universities and, and converted myself from an abstract algebra mathematician to a very applied statistician. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, then I had to deal with lawyers and all of the legal issues where we were using statistics and discovered that they were <laughs> not because of discrimination against women, but because as someone once told me, why do you think I'm in law school? It's because I couldn't take mathematics when I was an undergraduate. So <laughs> lawyers uh, are sort of a bad case. I sort of felt a very good a couple of falls ago. Uh, in one of my graduate statistics classes here at American, I had as a, as a person who signed up for credit, a retired uh, law professor from, from the university here. And she said the same thing, that she'd gone through her entire career as a, as a lawyer, dealing with not being able to do the mathematics very well and being disgusted with her colleagues who weren't much better. So she came back and took a graduate course in statistics when she was retired. Mary, can you describe to us a challenge you faced at some point and, and how you overcame it? Well, I mentioned the fact that uh, when I walked into graduate school the first day, I was greeted with not a, um, a very pleasant sort of reception. Along the way, there have been lots of cases where I've worked uh, legal cases, lots of cases at the university where I've tried to get things done and it's it's been hard. I don't think there's any particular thing that the I would observe, we, I was talking to my colleagues just recently here about some university policies having to do with how we treat faculty. And uh, remember that one of the first issues that I took up um, at the university was the fact that um, very, very few people had health insurance. Now we're talking back in the, in the 70s and 80s, 70s in particular. And the, uh, the staff weren't very well paid. Not that the faculty were all that well paid either, but the staff were particularly, the, the secretarial staff, the administrative staff, were not terribly well paid. And, and the university had a health insurance plan where they paid part of the cost. And we did the same thing we have now, but there were very few people in the low-paid category signed up for it because the employee contribution still had to be quite substantial. Mm-hmm. And 
my argument was that we had to get more people signed up because if they didn't have proper health insurance, then they would take long absences from their jobs and would actually cost the university money. Of course, anytime if you've been at a university, you know, arguing anything that's going to cost the university money is, is, is not easy. However, I finally persuaded them to put in a rule at that time that if the uh, salary was low, at that time the salary low was, uh, I think it was $22,000, but if your salary was below $22,000, you only had to pay $10 a month for your health insurance. For yourself alone, not for your family, but for yourself alone. The university would pay the rest of it. It would only cost you $10 a month. So then I went around to the university, you know, visiting offices, administrative offices, trying to get people to sign up. So we ended up with an open 90% coverage. Either people had it through their spouses elsewhere or through the university. And we were up to very large coverage with a lot of low employee, low-paid employees. And we still now have a differential. Um, of course, they're still paying a great deal more than $10. And the cutoff place has not moved as, as well as it should. But I'm not sure I have the energy to go back and argue that we need to, you know, to jiggle the plan that I worked for in the first place to make it a little bit more, a little bit better in, in the realm of social justice. But I did tell one of my younger colleagues that, and that, that was not his job. He could go and improve the health coverage. Then the second thing that came up was that um, this was, of course, before same-sex marriage was, was legal, but there was a well-understood uh, definition of a domestic partner. And the faculty who had domestic partners wanted to cover their domestic partners on, um, on the health plan uh, for obvious reasons, because the university health plan was better than going out on their own and getting insurance. So I um, was told by the you know, the deans and the provosts and people like that, that it would never get anywhere with the board of trustees. The board of trustees were far too conservative to ever approve anything like domestic partners, which they thought were probably root of all evil anyway. However, I talked a lot to people who were involved and other people who were not involved themselves, but thought it was important. And what we discovered is, as long as we talk about domestic partners being same-sex domestic partners, People didn't get quite so excited because the board of trustees didn't think there was such a thing. <laughs> so they thought the domestic partners we were talking about were, you know, traditional man-wife domestic partners. So they were, they were totally in the dark that, that, that what we were doing was supporting domestic partners. So anyway, they approved it. That's the point. So we were the first local university to get any sort of decent coverage for same-sex domestic partners on anything. Happened to be health insurance. Eventually, we got some of the other benefits, like um, tuition benefits you know, for staff to, to get a, a certain number of free hours of tuition and so on and so forth. But anyway, it was an interesting project. And it was the trustees that wasn't anybody uh, among the deans and provosts whom I was usually fighting with about something else. So how have you used your statistics and your uh, degree in law outside of your university? I'm sure that um, you found some very good uses for both. Well, I worked on a lot of cases in the United States, and, and one of them we were just talking about um, the other day in the department uh, was a Title IX case, sex discrimination in education, involved Brown University, and uh, like many of the discrimination cases under Title IX, it involves support for, um, for sports for women. And they were funding the men's athletics at Brown much more than the women's athletics at Brown. And we won that case in the, uh, in the court, in the, the uh, circuit court in Boston. And um, the university uh, appealed it to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court refused to take it. So in other words, the decision stood. And that sort of was the keystone case then with uh, sports discrimination in higher education. Uh, after we won that, um, most of the universities at least made some effort to fall in line through settlements or what have you. So it was, a, it was an important case from that point of view. But it also saw, showed me the reality. Uh, that was a case that uh, I worked on pro bono. The university spent over $3 million on their statistical consultants to fight this case from the district court through to when they appealed to the Supreme Court. So I always gave my colleagues who were Brown graduates a bad time over what their, their university was spending money on. And 
I have worked on cases um, for um, where I got paid uh, at a relatively low rate, but I've also worked on a lot of pro bono cases where people would not otherwise uh, have the ability to go to court at all. One of the real problems with, with the U.S. legal system, which everybody knows it's no secret, is that um, there's no justice when it comes to um, engaging in civil litigation. You're guaranteed uh, a lawyer. It may not be very good, but you're guaranteed a lawyer in criminal cases. But in, in criminal cases, there's nothing. And I spend a reasonable amount of time in, in London, and the British system is better. And the British system, as a civil litigant, you also get support um, and uh, paid for by the Crown. Not you know, might not get the best lawyer in London, but you get a lawyer. So it's um, a real deficit in our system. Mm-hmm. So Mary, I'm hearing you talk about effect change. You have been effective at achieving change in some areas that have become very critical. Only you were a part of affecting change long before they were recognized on a broader scale, like health insurance for many people instead of a few, benefits for same-sex partners, and now Title IX. So we have a lot of students who listen to this podcast, and I just wonder what kind of insights slash advice you could offer them about how to affect change? Like you were on the ground floor of affecting change. How do you do that? Well, you don't do it by yourself. You need to enlist support. And of course, that's, that's the difficult first step. Um, around the university, it's not that hard. You usually know which faculty, which staff are probably going to be sympathetic to a particular point of view because they make their, what their points of view are. So it's not, you're not flying blind and trying to find supporters. Um, more generally, it's much more difficult. Boards of trustees are a little bit harder, but the general public is, is even harder. So trying to get support for whatever it is you're trying to achieve, I think is, is, is the most difficult thing. Um, getting them to believe the way you're believing is not so bad, but getting people actually to get out and, and do something. You know, it's like I say, I decided to join this, this march briefly. A lot of people will demonstrate, but well, demonstrations are great. You have to go a little bit beyond that, too. And there needs to be a lot of uh, daily work. Uh, you have to be looking at uh, what things are unequal. For example, um, if you're trying to get the, the, the county that I live in to spend more on, on housing, uh, you have to have some data to show them what the housing situation is. And um, you have to have people who are willing to get the data in various different forms, and then people who know enough statistics to analyze it and be able to present their case effectively. So getting together the people who are willing to to work on on getting data and getting together the people who are willing to do the analysis, um, it's it's just a little struggle. You need to keep at it. And every time you think, you know, I thought, in the 80s that we were in good shape and then there were the teens and then I thought we were in shape. And now we're back to, we have some of the same problems uh, and some of the new problems. Uh, there's probably more recognition, but that doesn't mean that there's um, more willingness to act on the recognition that something needs to be done. Mm-hmm. We're in a position in the world right now, Mary, where the January 6th hearings are going on the there's uh heat everywhere in the world right now showing climate change um the supreme court recently overturned roe v wade there's concerns about what the supreme court's going to be doing in its next session to undo a variety of things that we thought were law i i wonder how do you how do you not be overwhelmed how do you find some some social justice thing to work on that you can, you know, dig in and and make some progress on? I guess uh, I'm reminded that it's an up and down. You you think things are going well, and um, and you say you have a depression. You have a depression in social justice just as you have a depression in, in economics. And uh, for whatever reason, people are not that concerned about 
how other people are, are housed, how other people are able to eat or not able to eat, etc. And um, then it turns around and people become more aware of what the issues are. There's a, there's a cycle up and down with that, like with everything else. Um, you, you just you know, have to keep hoping that a new generation will come along and understand that um, it's now in their hands and they have to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, so Mary, this raises the question for me, what are you spending your time on these days? Well, I just wrote a, I wrote a, a column for um, a statistics room called Chance, and it's called Odds of Justice. And the column is about the ways that statistics and the law intersect. And it doesn't, the, the journal appears four times a year, and I don't write a column for everyone, but usually for two or three a year. And the one I just finished is a column called Risk. It's not going to appear until November. But the one called Risk deals with all the ways that statistics and insurance um, coalesce, uh, coincide, and um, operate against one another. Uh, for example, um, most of us who work in statistics, or most of us, whether we work in statistics or not, think that discrimination is bad. Uh, it's bad to treat people differently. You should treat people equally. Insurance, on the other hand, think that difference is the lifeblood of insurance. And discrimination is good. It's good to discriminate. And you discriminate on the basis of risk being different. So, of course, you're going to charge people differently for automobile insurance, depending upon how they drive. You're going to charge people differently for life insurance, depending upon their health. You're going to charge people differently for housing, depending upon various factors, et cetera. So insurance, the business of insurance is the business of paying claims. And you need to assess risk. And so the whole problem is how are you going to... meld together our notion that, that discrimination is bad with the insurance notion that discrimination is good. So that's the latest column. I just sent that off. <laughs> uh, then I was thinking about what's, what's next. And I've done lots of things I've done with respect to education, with respect to I did one on death penalty, which was depressing to write, but I thought it was a good column when I finished it uh, on public funding for, for public education, various topics like that. Um, also, on the whole notion that you know you've got algorithms and now you don't blame people for things anytime anything goes wrong, it's the algorithm. The machine did it. You didn't do it. But what I'm going to write about now, um, when I finish getting my course ready, a sample that I mentioned previously, mm-hmm. uh, is academic freedom as it respects as it, there's with respect to statistics. Uh, I currently chair the. Um, American Mass Society Committee on Human Rights of Mathematicians. So we hear a lot of cases about human rights of mathematicians. And that includes statisticians and other people like economists that touch briefly on the field. And the issue is um, how your actual work uh, is constrained um, by restrictions on academic freedom or restrictions on free speech. Um, For example, uh, there's a case of... um, a statistician in uh, of Greek origin who's now living in the United States, who briefly was the finance minister of Greece um, during the time of uh, great financial difficulties in Greece. Not that there are financial difficulties now, but this was a really bad time. And he had uh, previously worked for the World Bank, and he went to Greece um, to, to try to help the Greece government in this time of problems. And the finance system was all messed up, and they were not reporting uh, data Properly, they were way underestimating the cost of living, which is such that a lot of governments tend to do. And in particular, they were not reporting to the EU, of which Greece is a member, accurate data. So when he took over the job, he started supporting accurate reporting accurate data. Um, no sooner did he do that, do that than he was charged by the Greek government, which essentially undermining the government by reporting accurate figures. And this case has been going on for years. And he's won in court a number of times. And every time then the Greek government uh, appeals it in the Greek courts, and he wins again, and then they appeal it again, and so on and so forth. He just now has, just now, in recent months, has appealed the case of the European Human Rights Court uh, to see if 
they won't say the same thing that the Greek courts have been saying, and we'll see whether the Greek courts pay or the Greek government pays any attention to what the uh, European court says. So there's, you see, an example of, of, of how the use of statistics is confined. There are other people, there was a case in Florida recently that got a lot of publicity because um, there were some environmental issues in Florida, and the governor was opposed to whatever legislation was being proposed that would do something for the environment. I forget exactly what. And two faculty members were going to testify using the data that we're all familiar with and showing, yeah, lots of things are bad for the environment. And they were told that they couldn't testify. They were, they were uh, at the University of Florida at a public institution because it was against what the governor thought was the correct position. And that went on for some time. And eventually the governor did, did have to back off and tell them that, that yes, they had the right to go and testify. <laughs> um, and similar cases have that, that way. They've not reached the news, but people have been uh, deterred either on their own or because they've been told by somebody, either somebody in the government or somebody in their own institution, that they can't testify with what is an unpopular sort of view. Mm -hmm. um, I, that's what I want to write a column about, mm -hmm. is the uh, issue of academic freedom as, as a mathematician, as a scientist in general. Um, we'll see when I get that done, when I finish preparing my courses for four. <laughs> and... Then when I do my other favorite thing, which is I'm an opera fan. And I'm an opera fan as a result of when I was a student in Germany, when you went down to the opera in Frankfurt a half hour before the performance for uh, what was the equivalent at the time of a, of a quarter. Uh, you could have any ticket that hadn't been used. And so I learned to love opera. And so the first week in August, I'm going to Santa Fe, which has an opera festival. And that I learned about because Justice Ginsburg was a big fan of the Santa Fe Opera. So it's partly the opera and it's partly because it's, it's a way to think about Justice Ginsburg. But that takes out a week of when I would otherwise be working on other things. One way that um, your social justice advocacy has directly impacted both Della and me is your work with uh, AWM in founding the AWM. I was wondering if you could take us back a little bit and talk to us about uh, not only how that came about, but sort of um, uh, what you were thinking at the time and, and um, what drove you to found the AWM. Well, that's an example of what I mentioned briefly before, which is getting people together. Uh, it's very hard to do something by yourself. It's a little bit easier if you can enlist people to work in whatever cause it is that you're promoting. And that's the case with AWM. Uh, I had come to discover um, after graduate school and in my first job um, that there was discrimination in, in mathematics, uh, discrimination against women, discrimination against lots of other people as well. Uh, but um, I, you know, I complained a lot when we would go to meetings, you would find the only good part about it was there was no queue in the restroom for women because there were no women at the meetings. Um, <laughs> so I talked to a lot of other women about this and the story, I will, I'll repeat the same story, which everybody tells, uh, just because there are people who haven't heard it, which is that uh, I was told that um, the people who made these rules were the consul. This is sort of like the Board of Trustees of the University was the Consul of the American Mathematical Society. Mm -hmm. So I thought it would be good to go and, and find out what the Consul was doing that would have all these sorts of rules that seemed to exclude, if not exclude, at least discriminate against women. So I showed up in a meeting of, of the Consul, and the president of the, of the American Math Society at the time stopped me at the door and said, no, no, this was closed only when the Consul members could go. And I had looked up all the rules about that previously and discovered that the council was open to all of the members of the American Mathematical Society, mm -hmm. of which I was one. So I pointed that out to him, and he said, well, it's a gentleman's agreement. So I announced that I was not a gentleman, went into the meeting, and then decided we really needed some help. And that's how I did and got started. We had seven people when we started. And uh, we organized mainly by seeing people at other meetings, regional meetings of the uh, uh, MAA, regional, regional meetings of the American Mathematical Society. There's also a group, Caucus for Women in Statistics, that works together with AWN. I was an early member of that, but that I didn't start. It's only a little war. Mm -hmm. 
Although, interestingly, it started about the same time. We all became you know, suddenly aware of the 1970s somehow. Has the AWM done what you were hoping for, achieved what you wished? I think we've done a pretty good job. It's probably, it, it's one of those things where it has trouble bouncing, bouncing back and forth between uh, being um, very research-oriented and being more um, teaching-oriented or not even more teaching-oriented, but being more action-oriented. More, let's do something about all the problems out there in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's hard to both do abstract research and worry about all the problems out there in the world. As I say, I got out of mathematics and instant statistics because it was a problem. So AWM still has that problem from time to time of, mm-hmm. of trying to balance this. And, you know, for a period of a decade or so, um, people will think it's too heavily emphasizing research. And then the next decade, next decade people think it's uh, spending too much time worrying about teaching. And then the next decade is spending too much time worrying about discrimination. So that's that's been a problem. Uh, I think we've been lucky in, in, in doing well in everything that we do, maybe not as well as we would like, but better than, than I expected, sure. Much better. Great. So Mary, can you tell us about a time where, or an experience where you felt like you really belonged or a place where you felt uncomfortable and did not belong? Not really. I mean, I've been in places a lot of times where I felt I didn't belong, um, either because they were mainly male-dominated, but I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East, and people ask me frequently um, if I don't don't have problems blending in with societal aspects of, of various countries in the Middle East. And um, many times I do feel that um, you know, I'm different than everybody else, but I find that people are, are quite accommodating in, in various ways. Um, it's one of the things that I, I used to find irritating, and now I didn't bother much anymore. But um, in, in, a, in a country in the Middle East where I would maybe visit the family of an ex-student of mine, a student had gotten a PhD with me and was back in, in the country, and so I went to visit the family. And I noticed that I got to eat at the table with the males and the women all ate in the kitchen. Mm. But it turns out that in this particular country, if you get a PhD, that basically qualifies you as you can now get to eat at the table instead of in the kitchen. I think this still goes on in the United States, and this might, might, might not be quite so obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, another time, we were, I was on a, working on a project. We were offering some advice to a different Middle Eastern country. Uh, and it was when computer science first became really widespread in the uh, education system. And so this particular university was wanting to have uh, to train its staff in, in, in computer science. So I went to the, to the lab to see what they were doing. Well, they had a curtain in the lab dividing off the front from the back. And the women were sitting behind the curtain and the men were sitting in front of the curtain. But unfortunately, it was video. <laughs> so my great innovation. Was to turn the curtain around 90 degrees, so it went down the middle, and everybody was had the same vision of the of the front of the, of the classroom. So you know, yeah, uncomfortable, but you try to do something about it. If it's as easy as changing the curtain. <laughs> but there are still places. For example, I um I, I spend a certain amount of time in London, and there are um, there's a, a segment not far from where my flat is in London, which has a lot of Middle Eastern restaurants. And there are still restaurants that I don't go into by myself there. Not that anybody's going to mistreat me, not that anybody, I mean, the food will be fine, the service will be okay, but I really won't feel comfortable. Now, there are others, you know, next door, so now I've learned to go out to this one and not the other one. And not that I'm openly treated differently, but I just get a different feeling about, about being there. So it, it happens, and, you know, you just, you don't go back if you don't need to, like, you know, you go to the restaurant next door. If you have to work with the people, then you make whatever accommodation you can and, and try to try to help the people as much as you can. Mm-hmm. Mary, how do you take care of yourself? Well, not very well. Um, <laughs> I, have, I have three incurable diseases. Mm-hmm. None of which, fortunately, is terminal. I have arthritis, but everybody who's my age has arthritis, so far as I know. So. You know, sometimes it's worse and sometimes it's better. 
So the arthritis doesn't bother me much. It's the problem with the, the uh, what has caused my spine essentially to collapse, which is, is, is difficult. So I, I walk with difficulty. I use a cane. Um, I order a wheelchair now when I fly, um, which sometimes arrives and sometimes doesn't, but never mind that. Um, and then the third thing I have is what's called lymphedema, which causes my legs uh, to be swollen. Not like just like your legs swell when you've sat too long or you've been on the plane too long, but permanently. And uh, it's 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 a problem that no known cure is known. It's it's not particularly painful, but you you if you've ever had your legs swell because you've been on the plane too long or something, they're permanently like that. It's not it's not great. Mm-hmm. Aside from that, I try to, to take reasonable care of myself. The last time I went to see a, a doctor, um, she advised that I should have five uh, servings of fruit, five servings of vegetables a day. And I thought by the time I'd had the five servings of fruit, the five servings of vegetables. However, she didn't say you're just eating too much. I should lose weight. I know I should, but my doctor also should lose weight. So she never says anything to me about losing weight. She tells me about eating vegetables and fruit, but she doesn't say anything about losing weight. That's not good. I should change doctors. I suppose it would be better for my health and somebody would be telling me not to eat so much. But um, I tend to get all okay. (laughs) I have not had COVID. I was diagnosed positive once when I got off a plane in London and they delayed in getting a return back to me. And it was was such a mess that I just ignored it. So I've been okay. So far, so good, but you never know. My colleague across the hall just was diagnosed positive last week. Mm-hmm. And we thought we were done with it. So Yeah, it's going around again. Mary, I wanted to ask you one more question and before we go to our quick fire questions, which is what advice would you give to your undergraduate self? My undergraduate self? Um, one thing that I wish I had done is learned another language besides, besides learning the German. Uh, I, I learned French, but my French is not good and never will be. Um, and my Arabic is even less good. Uh, I wish I had spent maybe more time in English an undergraduate and not trying out every single course that was offered, but maybe expanding a little bit that way. So my, my limited skill in languages is something that I regret. I have the same regret. Yeah, me too. Okay, so are you ready for some rapid fire questions? When you wake up in the morning, what do you look forward to about your day? Getting up. (laughs) Okay, Mary, what is your go-to song to energize you? If you want to put on some music to help you perk up, what do you listen to? Oh, the beginning of Traviata. Mm. Oh, we should have known. It would be long. Where's a place that you really enjoy? London. Tell us why. Um, because there's opera there. There's museums there. I have a flat in a reasonable place. I now learned how to get around. Um, I have friends there. Um, it's a different set of problems than I have here. When I'm in my office here, there's always somebody coming in wanting me to do something for them. <laughs> I'm in London, there isn't. Well, there may be, but it's not so much at least. What's on your desk at work that would surprise us? <laughs> well, I've already mentioned opera, so it wouldn't surprise you anymore, but there is uh, a brochure for the Philadelphia Opera because I'm ordering tickets for the Philadelphia Opera. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the other thing that might surprise you, I also collect owls. So I have about 250 owls in my office, of which there are one, two, three, four, five owls sitting on my desk to, together with the statue, little statue of Justice Ginsburg. Oh, yeah. Any particular reason for owls? Um, Many, many years ago, I had a a Greek student in my class. And after class was over, he came in with a little owl about four or five inches tall and said that Athena was the goddess of wisdom. And he'd learned so much in my course that he wanted to give me this statue of of an owl because that was the the familiar of of Athena. And then another student saw it and, and I got an owl from Thailand. I don't think that they have a tradition of that, but nonetheless, he saw one owl and thought I should have another. And I bought some of the owls myself, but people have brought them to me from all over the world. 
<laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> and finally, in a single sentence, Mary, what would you say to a person considering pursuing mathematics? Look at all the things that you can do with mathematics and um, see what doors you can open with them. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's That's wonderful. Well, thank you very much for your time with us today, Mary. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule, your busy life to spend some time and chat with us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Mary. Bye. Okay. I really enjoyed that conversation with Mary Gray. Della, what did you take from it? Well, as I mentioned, I was really impressed with her advisor as an undergraduate who was actually the registrar of her small school, reminded me again and really encouraged me to be the most effective advisor possible. I love how she's cared about critical issues long before they became in vogue. And I really appreciated her insight about you can't do it by yourself. You unite people around a certain issue and that will help you affect change. I appreciated her discussion of a recent article where she wrote about risk as a place where insurance companies actually do have discriminatory practices. Um, And finally, I just loved her point about if you feel uncomfortable, do something about it. Mm -hmm. It just seems like a little tagline. Just Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how about you? You know, I really appreciated um, hearing her, who has such a a long history of working in social justice. I liked hearing her talk about the the, the cycle that we're in a depression in social justice right now, and that and things cycle up and down. It just seemed like a very uh, positive way to think about things. Yeah, it was it was great speaking with her. Well, thanks so much for listening, and until next time, we'll be counting you in. Bye-bye. Count Me In with Della Indiana is produced by the talented Aiden Martin. Music created by Casey Fenster and podcast image by Victoria Robinson.